0: the ideas, the leaders, the lives
1: that are shaping Denmark, and the world from blocks hub in Copenhagen, Denmark. This is global Denmark. Welcome back to the global Denmark podcast, where we explore how thought leaders and innovators are working to create a better Denmark and a better world. Well guys, we had a very special interview with one Mr. Måns Lukatov and we are going to be releasing this interview in a two-part release with part one today. And for those of you who do not know who Måns is, Måns is the former Speaker of the Danish Parliament. He's been a member of the Parliament for the Social Democratic Party for over 35 years, where he finally stepped down in November 2019. He has been the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He has been the Minister of Finance and Taxation in Denmark. So Moens has done lots of things, to put it mildly. In addition, Moens has been the President of the General Assembly of the United Nations, the 70th Session back in 2015-16. And he is the author of many books and is a frequent commentator on Danish television. For our purposes, we took a deep dive into what the Danish model is looking at the benefits and obligations based on Moens' book, The Danish Model, A Success Story, and also how that reflects in today's world. We took a deep dive into the concept of equality, what his greatest accomplishment was as finance minister, what it meant to be the foreign minister, also during 9-11, evaluating choices from the past, how he would react to current events with NATO and the relationship with the United States. We talked about climate change, his experience as president of the UN General Assembly, and his current position as the the new chair of a project called EnergyNet, looking at how Denmark can take the lead in revolutionizing renewable energy for generations to come. I thought this was a rather amazing conversation, and it went so long we had to divide it into two parts, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So without further ado, we bring you Mr. Mons Lukatov.
0: All right, we are back, everyone, and I am sitting here with a distinguished guest, the one and only <laughs> Mons Lukatoft. Mons. <laughs> How are you doing today? Yeah, I I'm doing well. Thank you for coming to me. Yes, for our audience, Mons was so kind to invite us into his uh, beautiful home here. So we're recording live from Mons Lukatov's living room. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. yes? yes. <laughs> Mons, I want to dive right in. For our both Danish and global audience, you wrote a book back in 2006 entitled, in English, I guess, The Danish Model, A European Success Story. What is the Danish model and why is it successful?
2: Well, I think... If you look at what's happening right now with the coronavirus, you can see what the Danish model is all about. If you compare with your home country in the United States, you can see what uh, strong political institutions and strong leadership and the existence of a genuine public health service and a well-organized labor market created in combination with what the uh, strong trade unions have done themselves, but also what the government over the decades have created of welfare institutions. That's what the Danish model is all about, the coherence of the welfare system. And this for many foreigners I think particularly for, for Americans, a very, very difficult thing to understand. How can a country with a so high level of taxation be
0: competitive? Yes.
2: Uh, on the international scene. How can that bumper be flying with all those <laughs> right. burdens of taxation? And that's what I tried to write about back in in twenty oh six. And it's still with some modifications the picture. This model of the Nordic welfare societies is the best combination of equality and competitiveness on the international scene. What we pay for during high taxes is things that uh, in other countries is only for the private purse to pay for or through insurance schemes to pay for, be it good hospitals, be it uh, good university possibilities for children and so on. And that's why we have much more broad based strong competences and much more equality than than most other countries. Social harmony is better in Denmark. I don't paint a picture of everything is good. It actually worked went in a somewhat wrong direction in the past fifteen years mm. with more inequality, but still in the international comparison we are the bumblebee that can fly. We are the country built over at least a 100 years of different building stones that includes most people in a welfare development. Of course, it has been challenged also by migration because it's, it is difficult yes. for people coming from very far away cultures and countries to come here and fit into that system. I mean, we have always had the ambition that we would not accept a very, very low minimum wage and we were able to equip each and everyone with the, the qualifications so that they could have an honest an and decent wage. Mm. That's not always as possible when you have migration from people with quite other preconditions. Still, I mean, the Danish model is a European success.
0: How does uh, people... In a government and get to a level where there's so much buy-in to pay a tax level that in other countries would be completely unacceptable. What do you attribute that to this collective goodwill in terms of we're willing to pay this tax to be able to achieve the outcomes of the Danish model?
2: The basic explanation is that people accept that they get value for money. Mm. They get education Of good quality they get a general health service system they get old age pensions they get reasonable level of of unemployment benefits things that for at least the lower paid part of the population would be much more expensive to get if you should buy from a private insurance company it is also a combination of a system which has historically been less corrupt than most other Mm. countries we are nearly always at the top of the uh, Transparency yeah. International Index in this country. So the combination of, I, I would say, pretty good management of public services, done corruption, gives the democratic legitimacy for collecting high taxes.
0: So there is that trust in institutions. Trust that...
2: in institutions. And I think at some point, the understanding of wealth, for instance, in the U.S., the middle class family maybe doesn't pay Nearly as much in taxes, but they pay the same in contributions to the kindergartens, to the health services, to getting their kids to
0: university.
2: They have, haven't got more for their personal daily life and fun because of the low taxes.
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> no. right. Your disposable income after yeah. all these things are... Relatively on par. Now, when you're traveling the world, you've obviously been the Minister of Foreign Affairs as one part of your CV. What are some of the, when you're talking to other state leaders and you explain the Danish model, what are some of the reticence that they they say that, oh, uh, that sounds great, but we can't even look at that in our country?
2: Well, I think in some countries, the problem is the rich people and the rich companies have bought the political system, more or less, and the media.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs)
2: So it's, it's very, very difficult to come out and explain the benefits of a model like this. But in Europe, it's not that big a problem. I mean, Most of, the, at least the Western European countries, have systems that are similar or yes. somewhat in the same direction as the Scandinavian model, except for the fact that we have paid more of the welfare system by direct taxation on the individual family, where much of the taxation in Germany, for instance, or France, is from the companies. They take okay. a lot of, out, of contributions from the companies for pension for the wage and so on. So it looks like lower wages, but also lower taxes. Correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the difference is not that big.
0: No. Now, you mentioned that one of the challenges is migration yeah. and people coming into the system from the outside. I can see why that could be an issue, because if you're used to a system that's predicated upon corruption, or a lower amount of trust, a completely different model. Buying into that, this Danish model, would probably require saying, I want to see what happens first, yeah. put skin in the game here.
2: You can also say it's a combination of benefits and obligations for us. If we cannot get people to participate, to take work, to earn wages, to pay taxes.
0: This mentality that we're in this together through yeah. benefits and yeah. obligations yeah. Yeah. as a citizen yeah. or a resident. You know, it's really interesting when we talk about what motivates human beings, right? I come from the United States and the concept of liberty or personal responsibility is, is huge. Yeah. And I, I know that when they hear about socialism or the social welfare model, a lot of Americans, especially the Republican Party, equate it to communism and that how could this work? There's no motivation. It's anti-capitalistic. What is your response to that? Well, the response is
2: that we see there is a motivation even with high taxes. I mean, we, we don't tax a 100%. People have every possibility to earn good money. Companies have every possibility to earn good money. and They actually do, and they are competitive with, with many uh, American companies. Oh, yeah. By the way, we often see very bright, highly educated people go outside, to the U.S. or other parts of the world, working there, getting very high taxes, uh, very high wages, Mm -hmm. low taxes. They return, many of them return to them because of the level of security, the level of kindergarten uh, coverage, the level of of health services. I mean, compared with the U.S., we have a uniform system covering everybody, costing half.
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's a very good illustration of the fact I think that markets cannot solve everything. Mm. markets can be very useful tools if they are not the master but the servant mm. If there is a framework for special social standards, environmental protections, whatever oh yeah, markets can work very well, but they have to have the right incentives. There is no such thing as an unregulated market they are best regulated. Mm-hmm. And slightly regulated such things as an unregulated market. No. And what happens in, in other countries, what I see in, in the US is that the business capital has been so influential on the legislation. That is an explanation why the markets are not working with a strong social dimension. We saw it, of course, in the financial crisis, other financial crises back in time the limitations of the markets uh, if they are totally unregulated. Yes. No lessons actually learned from what happened in nineteen twenty-nine. It is very much also about the political system, how does it work, how uh, how how we be able to mobilize what I think is the genuine interest of ordinary yeah. in trade unions in political actors. Yeah. Participation in elections. Because in- People feel it actually makes a difference.
0: Yeah, again, an obligation of what it means to be a citizen. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah. it's interesting, the Danish model. Is, Is this something that you think can work in all contexts, or does it require a smaller country that has this level of trust? At what point do you think this could be exported?
2: I don't think that this specific model a Danish model can be exported as uh, a social package. Uh, I mean, it's a result of very, very, many decades of gradual implementation. Mm. But I think also, unfortunately, that at least it's much, much more difficult in an ethically divided country. But we also feel a little uh, with, with migration in recent decades.
1: Right.
2: Huge very ethnically and socially divided countries, maybe it's hard to get the the general acceptance of the justice yeah. of this model.
0: Yeah. You can see that with heterogeneous beliefs, that it's yeah. the level of trust and mistrust yeah. towards each other. Yeah. Where in Denmark, I mean, that was one of the things I was really struck as, as a foreigner coming in. Just the, the level of trust that you see magnified in so many elements of society. Yeah. I'm leaving a child in a, a pram outside <laughs> unattended. It's a classic yeah. example, yeah. but all the way up to the the foundation of the Danish model. Yeah. I think it's a it's a beautiful thing when you see it in action, and it's also a really eye opener that it took me some time to really accept. Wow, I can believe in this. This is this is real. Now, equality. You fought for the principle of equality your entire career, and that's a core component, obviously, of the Danish model. Could you describe what equality means for you and where we're at in terms of twenty twenty.
2: Of course, equality is not that everybody earns exactly the same amount of money. Equality is that there is a strong network in society creating a high minimum standard. That a lot of the risks of life is diminished by a social insurance system. You can describe yeah. the welfare state as a social insurance. Sure. System. And it is born out of the the idea understanding of the human nature that you are only capable of developing your talents if you are not hungry torn down of very very difficult uh, social conditions
0: yeah going back to yeah. kind of the Maslowian yeah. hierarchy of needs how can you talk about self-fulfillment if you're not eating yeah
2: yeah yeah exactly and that's why I think the miracle of welfare systems may be a few of the uh, very competent very high paid people go outside to look for level taxes. Yes, that can happen. But you develop the competences of uh, people which were in the bottom of the social pyramid much, much better in this country than in many other countries.
0: So you have at the bottom of the pyramid equal opportunity and a a net, if we use that metaphor, a solid pyramid for the basic needs to be met, that insurance. And then what happens... Towards the top in terms of outcome, that can differentiate, obviously. Yeah, so, so. But,
2: but I mean, there would, would always be the question you were about to ask the same thing. How can we get people to go to work when they are socially secured at a rather high level? The explanation is it's no free lunch, it's not a kind of citizen wage. I mean, you have obligations. You have obligations to try to get a good work, and you have a social structure and a labor market policy. Where you actually give people, the ideal at least, give people a good choice they cannot refuse of education or work. It's a combination, as I said, about benefits and obligations.
0: When you were the Minister of Finance and you were the longest serving Minister of Finance in, we talked off air, parliamentary times dating back to 1901. What was your greatest accomplishment that you were proud of during that time?
2: That's an easy question, because we took over the Social Democratic Party, where I belong, together with some minor parties. We made a coalition majority in 1993, which was at the peak of the unemployment after the oil crisis in the 70s. We had this little country, 350,000 people out of the world. 12%
0: unemployment. Wow.
2: And what we did was that we brought more than 200,000 of them at work over the, the following seven, eight, nine years. We didn't employ them in the state. Most of the jobs were private jobs. Okay, so We created much better conditions uh, through a kind of combined supply and demand change in the system. The Keynesian stimulus policy, yes, but also a supply-side reform, we gave people much better uh, re-education possibilities, uh, realizing the jobs lost within the the last 40 years, not very many of them came back. We had Mm -hmm. to equip people to take over new kinds of jobs, hiring the uh, value chain. uh, And we did that. We succeeded in doing that. And that's why this country is still so, so, so competitive.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, I, I've been here since 2011. Yeah. And it's just been amazing to see. Obviously, there's been little dips, but uh, the overall economic picture for Denmark's been extremely strong. Yeah. I can yeah. hear that that was a big part of that big turnaround there. Now, you've been the Minister of Foreign Affairs. I believe your tenure was during 9 11. Yeah. Maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about that time and. What kind of your approach to being the Minister of Foreign Affairs was at such a dramatic time in in history?
2: Well, first of all, from my personal perspective, it was the uh, chance of a lifetime also to try to be foreign minister in was only. And my original political engagement was in international affairs, in time during the Vietnam War, the revolutions taking place in the late 60s. I well, understand, of course, uh, having been both Minister of Finance Minister of Foreign Affairs is that the difference is very obvious. As Minister of Finance, you have extremely high influence on a small society. Mm-hmm. As Minister of Boniface, the domestic, you have very, very little influence on in the whole world. <laughs> right, right. You are more or less trying to <laughs> adapt to changing international conditions. And of course, we have been anchored and alliances economically in Europe, in particular, in the whole international system, being members of NATO, of course. And what happens to our big partners, particularly the United States, will will also determine much of our foreign policy. Not that we always agree. I mean, nine eleven was a huge crime and huge tragedy, but also the point of understanding. That the end of the Cold War was not the end of this. Mm. That we had, we were facing quite new challenges with the differences from North South, with the differences uh, in, in great religions. And it also changed uh, Denmark's international position. Maybe more than I really think was sensible to participate in military expeditions led by the United States, but without the international. That we used to demand from a United Nations. Mandate. I think that the Danish participation in Iraq was wrong because it was a war that happened on wrong and untrue premises about the existence of weapons of mass destruction. It was a war that that was started not only without the acceptance of the United Nations Security Council, but with strong opposition from most of the world Mm. and even from major partners as Germany and France. And it was afterwards obvious that there were no weapons of of destruction. But what happened was turmoil, bloodshed, the upcoming of even more extremist Mm. uh, groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was... What I observed, not at the very beginning, Afghanistan was different, but Afghanistan, I think today, we can also say it was not a successful strategy.
0: If you were a foreign minister today, when you have the United States, led by President Trump, continuously challenging the NATO alliance, what would you advocate for?
2: I would probably do much of the same as they do now, sit very, very silent wait for things to change. Mm. It's not unknown to most of us that the huge majority of people in this world, if they are at all informed about international development, they are sitting on their hands and hoping intensely that things will change because the disruption of every part of the international cooperation that has happened during the four years of Donald Trump is extremely dangerous. The way of handling interests uh, conflicts between China and the the breaking down on trust in the NATO alliance, the breaking down of all support for international institutions and the United Nations family, trade wars, not least walking away from the Paris Climate Agreement. I mean, the most existential threat we are facing if we are not starting a nuclear war is climate change. Yes, It's coming more gradually, but it will be by far most dangerous challenge for my children and my grandchildren in this world, creating changing living conditions for hundreds and hundreds of millions of people and creating more confidence. I
0: absolutely agree. Yeah. And, you know, as a father to a daughter, thinking about the future and really climate change and what we can do, yeah. I want to pivot there in a second, but to wrap up this with President Trump, Four more years of denigrating this alliance, I think, could have catastrophic consequences for Europe uh, and the world. And he claims that it's all about burden sharing, right? It's a financial transaction for him. Is there any truth to that? Or or is is there something deeper here in terms of his affinity with the Russian foreign policy? It's
2: certainly impossible to understand what is the relation between Trump and Putin. I'm not able to say anything critical about the Russian leader. No, about NATO, I mean, it's not new that American presidents want more European contributions to the defense. We have committed to try to reach this 2% level. I think we all hoped that the international development could be that it was not necessary to pay as much for defense because there are many obligations to fulfill on climate agreement. Right. So so it would be much better if we could create an international environment much more the one we created, they created in the, the late eighties. Weapons control and right. proof on, on military spending, Control of, of nuclear weapons developed of course that would also be beneficial to the United States. But that we should take a proportionally higher share, I don't disagree with that, but I think the whole level of expenditure nowadays are all too high. And looking away from the fact that we, what we ought to invest in is uh, the common necessity of limiting the consequences of, of climate change. And that's what is really the mm. difference from five years ago when I was President of the General Assembly in the United Nations where we had this common understanding. We had an American president that supported the decisions of sustainable development, but also an American president working to renew or reestablish weapons control
0: agreements. Let's pivot there. Tell our audience about your experience being the president of the UN General Assembly, the 70th session of that. What was it, 2015, 2016? Yeah. What was that like for you?
2: It was a huge experience because, I mean, you jump into it. Uh, I was there for 15 months. It's a position that always changes between the countries. Yep. Denmark would probably have to wait 200 years more <laughs> to, to get it once again. <laughs> you, you came at
0: the right time. <laughs> yeah, I came at the right time. But of
2: course, it was extremely interesting So, join the network of world leaders for a moment. I know some of them more personally. Work with them in trying to contain conflicts, and I would not say that I invented sustainable development. The (laughs) climate agreement in Paris to see how the machinery works, and how at that time how essential it was that the two major economies of this world, the United States and China, worked together on not only agreeing the necessity of cooperating between the two of them, but also pushing for difficult countries around the world, like Saudi Arabia or Venezuela, say, we have to do this. Mm. That was a great experience.
0: What do you attribute the breakthrough there to? How did China and the United States get on the same page, though?
2: It was the moment, at least, where, in spite of all the other differences they have, as systemic rivals, <laughs> we call it nowadays, the leaders understood that this was also a national necessity of working internationally together on climate change and, and that it could only happen with international agreements because it was the CO2 emission has no national border. There was finally also in the uh, huge part of the business community among mayors of the, the major cities of this world, in civil society in particular, this both pressure and understanding of the necessity. That message reached the highest level of government.
0: So, what does the president do? A president <laughs> you know, you know what what, what does the day to day look like when you're those for those 15 months? Are, are you in meetings all the time with yeah. with heads of heads of states and ambassadors to the UN? Or
2: we we have this opening week of 10 days where the, most of the heads of states and government in this world are assembled in New York. Not right now, and I had within these ten days eighty meetings with heads of state, or government, or foreign ministers.
0: That's that's a that's a packed agenda, right? (laughs) uh,
2: And because I had a very well prepared staff, I also learned a lot, even in very short meetings, about the interests and the personalities. But of course, most of the the year we we worked with with the ambassadors in in New York and. Well, I realized also, even some of the most ugly regimes of this world often have the willingness of trying to solve conflicts, the understanding of the necessity of working together.
0: Okay, that's really refreshing to hear.
2: It is. Belarus is very much in focus right now, not that much back then, but that was a very melancholic but a very professional man the Ambassador of Belarus. And he was really concerned about the conflicts in Europe and the risks of major confrontations between Russia and, and Right. Also, I would say, with these limited possibilities, made a good contribution to avoid them. That's also kind of experience that's good too. Are
0: there any state leaders that you met that are portrayed completely differently in the media or how we imagine them than their personalities are in person?
2: I don't think so. We have. At least, I think I had, for those of them I met, an impression that was more or less confirmed. Okay. I always had the greatest of sympathies for for President Obama. The openness of the very short meeting I had with him, I think the essence of it was, he realized that he could not get all the, the funds necessary for supporting the United States from the U.S. Congress. But what he could do, was to try to convince other countries to do more. Of course, he did whatever he could, felt committed to the UN system. In some way, easier put pressure on friends and allies to do more than he could come through Congress.
0: How quickly can the United States, if Joe Biden is elected president, get back into the Paris Climate Accord?
2: Uh, It's like the man banging his head on the wall saying, what is the alternative?" They can just stop because they are still formally in it. <laughs> okay, yeah, so. <laughs> until you pass is... the, the presidential election.
0: Okay, so they can just say, forget about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those four, yeah.
2: But of course, the most important thing is that there is a new leadership that can, again, regulate the markets on energy in the United States and take full responsibility in the international negotiations because there's been a lot of damage in the lack of uh, regulation. You yeah. can bring about the green development.
0: Let's talk sustainable development goals. They were formulated when you were the president of the assembly? Not or really.
2: They, uh, most of the work had been done okay. before. But I think we use credit to those who actually worked it out because it's a quite new concept of understanding the interdependency of all the challenges of humanity.
0: I can see your lapel, by the way. You've got the SDG lapel. I don't have, yeah, have i, I got to get one of those. <laughs> I, I can give you one. Okay. <laughs> but
2: if you look into it, storytelling about, well, we were successful in reducing the number of extremely poor people in the first 15 years of the century, we had to be able to eradicate extreme poverty in Probably we will not reach that goal in 2030, but we, we hopefully, in spite of coronavirus, we will come somewhat near to that. But the other part of it and I'm not repeating all the 17 goals, the other part of it is the understanding that we cannot walk the same road as we walked in the past 75 years or the past couple of hundred years. Uh, that kind of economic growth is not sustainable. Mm. It's a very huge transformation of infrastructure, uh, production structure, uh, Production methods, technology, consumption—that is necessary if up to ten billion people should be able to live on this globe. Just a couple of billion people in China and elsewhere are reaching out for for the way of life we have. We know two things for sure: they can't get it, and we can't keep mm. <laughs> it.
0: Has, it
2: has—it has to be different, and, and that's the real lesson. It's not. A very sad story. I mean, you can do a lot with renewable energies. It's an unlimited resource. Oh yeah, it's a question of, of, of technology and and political framing, and uh, political guided investment. You can do it, and we. It's an urgent task.
0: Yes, and I think you're talking about it from the grandest of scales, right, in terms of human survival and well-being moving forward generations. Yeah, 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 yes. And, you know, I'm engaging a lot of people right now. I would just talk to the deputy director of Densk yeah, yeah. Um, the Confederation of Danish Industries. And it's all about being a leader of fusing these SDGs into the core of major corporations, core business. Yeah, And that's an incredible movement I've seen the last three, five years.
2: Exactly, exactly. And the Danish experience, the Danish model is: we did that before, we did that back hundred years ago. We'll have a universal health system. We created the backing of good companies, making Danish medical industry yep. to one of the most competitive in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we said we want more renewable energy in the nineties, where I was part of, of of the government, we created support for a very, very important success story yeah. in Danish industry. And we can do that again on a much large, larger scale because we are in the forefront in many of the green
0: capacities. It's, it's unbelievable moments. Yeah. I mean, I look at these specific moments where Danes have taken the lead and said, we're moving forward, and they move forward. Yeah. It's, a, it's incredible. Yeah. Once the Danish people say, we're moving forward, yeah. it's unbelievable to see that in action. Yeah. So yeah. when I see the 2030 goals, yeah. I think... Yeah. yeah, they're going to go for it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> We'll get a lot of new, more interesting jobs out of it. Yeah. Because we can again, once again, supply the rest of the world with good solutions. I mean, the huge windmills FC is not only installed in the Baltic Sea or in the North Sea. They are, but they are on the eastern coast of Asia, the eastern coast of America. We are, at least for, for the time, the top, of Pops, in poverty.
0: That's amazing. A country of, what, five and a half million? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's fast forward a little bit to 2020 here. You've just been named the new chairman for an initiative called Energinet, mm-hmm. or the Energy Net, yeah. I guess we could translate it. Yeah. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that position and what you guys are trying to do there?
2: The Energy Net is actually the Danish totally state owned company that operates the big... Transmission systems of electricity and natural gas. That's a company that will be at the center of government investment, national investments in the transition to totally renewable energy electricity and all the technologies and infrastructure elements necessary to reach that goal within the next decade.
0: Yes. So this is a state-owned company? It's
2: a state-owned company yep. that will invest billions of dollars, actually, in the next few years in renovating and changing and uh, renewing the energy supply in Denmark. Away from coal, oil, and gas, gradually social supply of, of renewable energies and connecting with neighboring countries in exchanging of, of energy supplies. Very, very yeah. interesting and very concrete way of trying to fulfill the Paris Climate Agreement obligations.
0: Oh, that's perfect. So you're, so here you are <laughs> now back in it in a different context, really yeah. getting your hands in the in yeah. the weeds there. Yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So what does success look for you now? You're taking over this chairmanship. Let's say we're sitting down for a cup of coffee here in five years. What does success look like for you?
2: The success would be that we have... Uh, we balance the whole system so that we get all our electricity and a much bigger amount of electricity from wind and solar, and we can deliver it actually somewhat cheaper properly because the technology is developing very very fast and the, the uh, cost prices going down very very fast. But we have to solve a lot of, of systematic problems. I mean. It's much more difficult to balance the system when you're dependent on how much wind is blowing and how much sun is shining. Right, sure. <laughs> how do you store it or How do you use it in a different way? Okay. Uh, for instance, producing hydrogen out of the peak uh, production of wind and solar energy, which can be difficult to deliver something.
0: Okay. So there's a lot of science and and technology that's going to be crucial to this.
2: It's also, what I always say also to the Danish government, it's not only technological solutions because the necessary technological development will not happen and will not be profitable without governments changing the market conditions.
0: And there we are back to back well, we to creating back to the, the conditions.
2: It's all interrelated. CO2 uh, yep. taxes are necessary in order to speed up this transition, and make it profitable, obviously profitable uh, for everybody.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful panorama when you see the interconnectivity of it all. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mons, I think that is a wonderful place to take a quick break. Yes. And then we'll come back and we'll wrap up the podcast today with what we call our quickfire round.
1: And that concludes part one of our podcast with Mons Lukatov. Join us next week as we explore the values, beliefs, and inspirations that have made Mons who he is today. You won't want to miss this one. And until next time, see you on the GDP. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up the printed copy of the English language newspaper, Copenhagen Post, today. access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life.